Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Dr. Melina Abdullah is an expert on race, gender, class, and social movements. She was part of the original group of organizers who formed Black Lives Matter. She's also a professor and chair of Pan-African Studies at Cal State University, Los Angeles. I was beyond honored to have her come on Work in Progress to talk about the moment the Black Lives Matter movement came together, white privilege, and our responsibility to fight racism, how and where these systems originated, her reading recommendations, and so much more. She is brilliant and challenging and thought-provoking, and I know you're all going to learn so much from listening. So I want to jump right in to something okay. that we were talking about before I realized I should have pushed record. Uh, there's an article in The Land magazine, mm-hmm. and they wrote that you have, quote, become the scourge of the LAPD, a co-founder of the Los Angeles chapter of Black Lives Matter and a member of the group's national leadership team. You are perhaps the most vocal, visible, and effective critic of law enforcement in all of Los Angeles. For the past four years, you have organized the grieving families of people killed by the police or who died in police custody into a formidable group of advocates seeking deep changes to policing in L.A. And to me, that reads as a very high compliment. And me too. Okay. I was curious. I was like, ah, the word, I was like God, the word scourge is so charged. But does no. it feel kind of like a badge of honor at this point? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When we think about what LAPD is, mm-hmm. you know, I love the idea that I'm one of the most vocal critics, right? Mm -hmm. They need to be criticized. They need to be transformed. Mm -hmm. And that only comes by lifting our voices and doing work to do that. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's a a high honor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and prep for this 
going through and looking at the stats of the number of people who die at the hands of the police in this city and how it's higher than in cities like Chicago. It's higher than in cities like New York. It's it's something that I don't know that everyone is really aware of. What what a kind of crisis for the citizenry of LA this problem is. And it's an interesting topic to discuss because what I realize is that so often in circles like our overlapping circles, we're analyzing the problem of a system. Right. And in other circles where this topic comes up, people really feel personally attacked. It turns into, well, my uncle's a cop and is a good guy, or, you know, there's a lot of people who sacrifice to to be in uniform, whether it's in the police force or military service or whatever. And I'm curious because of your level of expertise at looking at the brokenness of a system and the historical problems of a system that have been passed down to modern day that I think so many people aren't aware of. And I want to get into that with you too. How do you get people to analyze the system and what the system does to even the quote, good guys who volunteer who get swept up in it? That's a huge question. Mm. Um, I think, number one, we start with the people who are most directly impacted. Mm -hmm. And so for Black Lives Matter, you know, um, a lot of people think that like the term Black Lives Matter is meant for non-Black folks to see our humanity, but it's not. It's Black Lives Matter is a rallying cry. It's for Black people to understand our own power. Mm -hmm. And Black people, I don't think any Black person I know is in any way... Um, duped into believing that the police are here to protect and serve us, right? Mm. So I think getting people to stand up, getting my people to stand up first, right, is hugely important, right? So there's not a whole lot of convincing that needs to be done other than, you know, policing as we know it hasn't always been. And so that means it can be changed, right? Policing that as we know it is a system, that somebody invented. And we're people who can disrupt that. And so I think that that's the biggest part is recognizing our own power. We're talking about systems and structures and institutions, but I think for Black people in regular neighborhoods, like I live in the Crenshaw district, right? Black people in my neighborhood, it's not, we don't have to think about structures and institutions and systems in like some theoretical way you know what it means when um, the current LAPD chief, Michael Morris, says he wants police on every street corner, at every bus stop, at every church pew, and every bar stool. And we know that's a bad thing. Like when you see um, now on Crenshaw, you usually see, um, you're starting to see like two officers per bus stop just standing there, like with their hands on their belts. That feels like an occupation. It does not make us feel safe. And so we don't have to explain the system to other Black people because we all feel the same thing. And that's not to essentialize us, but I think that our collective experiences with police, you know, tell us and inform us. And I, I think that kind of wisdom and that kind of expertise is the most valuable. Mm. So can we walk back? I'd like to know about how the mission as Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter LA began because you have been 
an advocate, you are an organizer, you are a professor, you are an academic. And you, I'm a mama. And you're a mama. <laughs> right. Yes. Two wonderful kids. Yeah. Uh, and your face lights up when you talk about <laughs> them. And I have so much fun. When I read profiles of you, mm-hmm. there's always like a mention of what the kids are up to. And I love it because oh. I, I feel like I'm, I'm getting the picture painted. But I'm curious how this all began because, you know, I became aware of you already as this leader in the movement and as an advocate. And, and for people listening, we finally got to meet years ago at the LA Women's March. Mm-hmm. And they were like, hey, you're going to introduce Melina Abdullah. And I was like, what? And I remember running. And I was up- like, what? Oh, my God. <laughs> I, was so I was just like, she's so cool. And I remember running up to you and being like, hey, this is crazy. I want to talk to you about everything that you do and figure out how to how to be there, you know, supporting and, and anything. Can I just run you through my remarks really quick? Because I want to make sure they're okay to you. And <laughs> That you, was really sweet. Oh, yeah. you were so generous. I just was like, you know, there are all these things I feel like it's really important to say. And and it is an interesting thing as as an activist in my own space and, and an advocate to try to figure out how to be a proper supporter and ally for my neighbors and for communities of color and and also not to like be a basic white girl who says the wrong thing. I'm just like, I don't know. So I, I asked you all of the questions and, and you were so lovely and gave me the confidence to walk up on that stage and just be like, the only reason that we're here and the only reason there's been any progress has been because of black women. And if we don't start mm-hmm. following them, the way we should have always been, we're stupid. I didn't use those words exactly, but mm-hmm. that's the truth. And and then you came up on stage, you know, with a whole crew and your family and you gave the most rousing speech and it was amazing. Oh, thank you. And um, yeah, I just, I feel like we've been teammates for a long time now. So that's that's where you and I first connected. Right. And you are this incredible icon in the community. And I'm wondering how from the inception of Black Lives Matter to speaking to 750,000 people in the streets of the Women's March, how does that all get started for people who don't know the story? So I don't think I'm an icon. I appreciate that. I, I mean, You are, ma'am. <laughs> I mean, I'm just like, even when you said, you know, expertise in this, I'm not. Like, I'm just, I am just a mom, right? I am just, I have three children and I have a million spirit children, right? And I'm a community member and I'm a mama's daughter and my grandmother's granddaughter mm-hmm. and... You know, my grandfather thought I could walk on water. And so all of that is in me. And I feel, I believe, I know that it's, I use a term called sacred duty, right? It's our Mm -hmm. sacred duty to not simply sit by as our people are oppressed and degraded and killed. And so... I have a loud mouth and my mother taught me like, never be quiet, right? Never just sit there and take it, right? And, you know, that's one of the things I really appreciated about our meeting is, you know, I don't watch a lot of TV, right? So I I knew your name, but I didn't, I don't really, you know, watch TV, right? But what I loved about you is one, the authenticity with which you approached me, 
but two, that it wasn't a one-time thing, Mm -hmm. that it was, well, how can we, what can I do? How can I use my platform? What, What feels good in terms of what I share? And I know like we have a whole bunch of friends in common and everybody, you know, kind of reports back on their work with you. And I just think it's um, really powerful and beautiful when people say, I feel like you've never said these words, but I feel like you've said that it's also my sacred duty. It's my duty. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the chants we use in Black Lives Matter is it is our duty to fight for freedom. Mm -hmm. It is our duty to win. We mm-hmm. must love and protect one another. We have nothing to lose but our chains. And I feel like you've embraced that. This idea that we can't just accept the world as it's handed to us and as those who are in it for greed and greater power and kind of the hoarding of resources at the expense of everyone else, mm-hmm. right? They don't get to decide how the world is going to move. We get to decide how the world is going to move. And mm-hmm. so I love that you've stepped into that. And, you know, I like the term teammates that we're teammates in this work. That's so kind. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Really, like that just that my chest feels like it's going to explode. <laughs> and I do, I do identify so deeply with that term sacred duty and I think about how the fuel I I talk my friend Glennon all the time we talk about sacred rage Mm. that like that fire in you that refuses to be quiet in the face of injustice is sacred rage that is a fuel source that never runs out Mm. and I think we have to press toward the things that light that for us and It is not okay, whether we're talking about the hoarding of resources or disparities in healthcare or the disparate experiences of different communities and those experiences being based solely on what those communities look like. This is, this is not okay. How could any of us not be enraged? You know, none of us is free until all of us are free. The, the, the ugly intertwining of the oppression of communities of color and the oppression of women Mm -hmm. The you know, we, even in the most conservative circles in America, you hear people criticizing, um, you know, communities around the globe that they view to be threatening or, you know, that, that they say, well, terrorists come from X. And it's like, well, what do they have in common? They oppress poor people and women. Mm. They destroy education systems so that they can promote fundamentalist ideology that is dangerous and inherently patriarchal. Right. Hello. Look in the right. mirror, sir. Right. Do you not see that you're doing that here in in ways that are unique to our own country and our own experience? And it is. It's our duty to stand for each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how does it start? How does the stand start in LA? Because you were among the original group of organizers who formed Black Lives Matter. And back in 2013, what is the landscape? What happens? And and what did your life look like at the time? Yeah. So, I mean, I've always been one who's not, not quiet, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I've also never been a real joiner. Like, I don't like joining organizations, mm-hmm. right? Um, I always feel like the deeper you get into something, the more, like, the drama kind mm-hmm. of unfolds. And so I just prefer to kind of move. And I would be a part of different movements, but not really deep. And um, July 13th, 2013, that's the day George Zimmerman was acquitted in the murder of Trayvon Martin. And um, 
Trayvon was not the first Black boy to be killed by, you know, a white supremacist or a wannabe white supremacist because Zimmerman's also this kind of complicated character, right, where Mm. he's a wannabe cop, he's a wannabe neighborhood watchman, he's a wannabe white guy. He's really none of those things, Mm -hmm. right? But he's kind of exhibiting, like, drawing power from his proximity to it, right? And so... The murder of Trayvon, in many ways, it's like the murder of Emmett Till, right? Emmett Till was mm-hmm. not the first Black boy to be lynched, right? But there was something special about Emmett's story, and there was the power of his mother, Mamie Till, who mm-hmm. decided to give him an open casket funeral and let the world see mm-hmm. the horror that her 14-year-old son had endured, right? Mm-hmm. And with Trayvon, there was something about his spirit, like I imagine the spirit of Emmett, right? Mm -hmm. That it resonated, like it resonated with us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when they would show Trayvon's face on the news, um, you know, Barack Obama said, President Obama said, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. And I had a son and my son actually looks like Trayvon, right? Like, not exactly, but very feeling-wise, right? Like same kind of shiny face, same um, sparkling eyes, right? Mm-hmm. Same innocence and also kind of budding. Um, I kind of like um, a little naughtiness in my children, right? <laughs> Just like life, like life in their face, yeah. right? Well, and, mischief is so good for kids. Yeah, that's it's, the word. Mischief, it's the thing yes. that makes us investigative. It's the thing that makes us challenge systems. It's the reason that movements are born because we go, does it really have to go like that? <laughs> right, right. You know, it's like right. the, the eight-year-old that wants to take a toy apart to figure out how to put it together right. could become the next great engineer or the next great social activists because they want to take it apart and put it back together better. And in the meantime, they're frustrating their mothers. Right. Because they're kids. (laughs) It's like, you know, I joke, I used to be a nanny and I was like, I nannied for the best kids in the world. And they were also like tiny terrorists. They were at moments. I was like, where did my sweet little children go? You're evil. And then they come back to you because they're kids. Right. Right. And that's what I feel like we got with Trayvon. He mm-hmm. was a 17-year-old child. He was a child. I don't like when they call him a young man. He was a child, mm-hmm. right? Um, 17-year-old child doing exactly what he should have been doing. And his life was stolen. And then the state gets behind Zimmerman and says he had the right to steal the life of this boy who was ours. And I remember... July 13th, 2013 was a Saturday. And um, we were watching, we were glued to the TV. And in California, it was becoming evening. So it means it was nighttime in Florida, Mm. right? And everybody on the news, all the newscasters are going, well, the verdict's not going to come in today. It probably won't come in until Monday. And so I left the house. I went to CarMax. I was trying to get a new car because my family was getting bigger. And I remember going into CarMax. And almost as soon as I got there, my brother called and he goes, where are you at? I tell him. And he goes, well, sit down because you're not going to like it. And he said he got off 
and they're giving him his gun back. And like, even when, and I don't know if it's like the events of the last week, but mm-hmm. even when, when I hear that second part, it, the gun, they're giving him his gun back, mm-hmm. just like hit me. And I felt this fog kind of overtake me and grab my kids, get them in the car. And I go home. We didn't buy a car. Um, and at the time my son was three and, you know, my other kids are a little older and I'm getting them all together. And I did what like mothers have to do. I'm a single mom. So cook dinner, bathe my son, put them all to bed. And then I found somebody to sit with them. And I had these other moms come over to my house and we kind of sat and we talked and decided to go out. And there's a park in the Crenshaw District of Los Angeles, Lamert Park, which is like um, the cultural center of Black LA. Terribly, and I hope we can get to this, they've put up a fence around it now. So you can't get into the park anymore. But At all? At all. Even during the day? Nope. Um, So that, I think, has a lot to do with the the neighborhood that's undergoing gentrification. And there were houseless folks who slept in the park. So they're trying to keep the houseless folks out. But I also think about like Black Lives Matter was birthed there, right? Like every protest you can think of began in that park. So we didn't need a tweet. We didn't need a text. We didn't need nobody to call us. We knew where Black people were going. We go there for our rage, but we also go there. That's where we went to celebrate the election of Barack Obama, Mm. right? And so they fenced off the park. But on July 13th, 2013, the park was open and we knew that's where to go. And that's where we went. And there were, you know, easily a thousand people milling around in the park, some crying, some upset, some giving like impromptu speeches. And um, I always tell people like who are becoming activists that the first investment you need to make is in a bullhorn right? (laughs) There's a power that comes, whoever has the bullhorn gets Hmm. to dictate the action, right? (laughs) And so I had the bullhorn. And I remember there was this young sister there who I was talking to, and this was her first time kind of coming out. And um, she said to me, because we were all talking to each other, um, well, I don't want to be in this park. And me and the other moms are like, well, what do you want to do? And she said, well, I want to march. So I grab the bullhorn and I go, we going to march, right? <laughs> and so everybody starts coming together. And then there's this kind of this back and forth, which I think is really important, where some people were trying to march south down Crenshaw, which if you go south, it gets blacker and poorer, right? If you go north, you actually start marching towards Wilshire, mm-hmm. right? Which is whiter and more affluent. Yeah, you march right into Hancock Park. Right, exactly. And so I'm like, we are not marching south. Because if you think about like what happened in 92, they don't care if you march south, right? Right. That's whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So I remember yelling on the bullhorn. I felt like we were running for freedom. I was like, go north, right? And so we all start marching north up Crenshaw. And... Um, we were kind of in the streets like that intuitively for about three days. Hmm. And on the third day of protest, we had this group, like we just called it like Black Community Organizer Space. And there were about 
maybe 15 of us, one of them was Patrice Cullors. Mm. And I was in that space as well. And so we had become really friends and comrades in that space. And Patrice had been in conversation with Alicia Garza, who I didn't know at that time, and Opal Tometi. And Alicia had put this letter online and she signed it, Black Lives Matter. And so while we were doing this intuitive work, they were talking about how to build a movement, not a moment. So on the third day of protest, I remember exactly where I was. I was, it was the first freeway shutdown of the Black Lives Matter era, right? So we were marching north of Crenshaw and these boys, probably younger than Trayvon, decided we had basically adopted a philosophy. This is why the Northern pattern was important of disrupting spaces of white affluence, right? So we're not going to disrupt South LA. We're going to disrupt the spaces that we see as responsible for the murder of Trayvon. And so there were these boys and I remember seeing their eyes dart back and forth to each other and they launched onto the off-ramp of the 10 freeway and all these thousands of people followed them, right? And my oldest daughter, who's a hell of an organizer in her own right, she was eight at the time. She's um, Maybe she was nine. She's 15 now. So we're six years old. So she must have been nine. She goes, come on, mama, let's get on the freeway. And I have like my three-year-old son in a stroller and I'm a courageous mom, but I'm not crazy. Right. So I'm like, we ain't getting on the freeway. And so we stood at the overpass and I took some pictures that wound up like going viral. And right after I took the pictures, I get this text and it originated with Patrice and it said, to meet, and it said, meet at 9 p.m. at St. Elmo's Village, right, which is this Black artist community. And so we did, and it was the third night, and we gathered in this beautiful artist village that is set up um, like an African village with this space in the center. And we circled up, and there were about 30 of us, including some of the mamas, including a bunch of my students who I called out into the streets. And then a bunch of Patrice's beautiful artists and organizer friends. And we committed to building a movement, not a moment. Now, mm -hmm. at the time, we didn't know what that meant, right? But it was a commitment that we made, like, from our souls. And it felt like, because we were under the, you know, it was dark and the stars and I imagine the moon was full. I don't know that for sure, but in my memory, it feels like it, right? Like it also felt, you felt this ancestral presence, right? Mm -hmm. And that was the birth of Black Lives Matter. And mm -hmm. from that day forward, we continued to organize. Um, I think it took us two or three days to um, organize the first planned march of Black Lives Matter, which we did it in Beverly Hills. We marched down Wilshire from La Cienega and Wilshire all the way down to uh, Rodeo and Wilshire. Mm. And those folks thought, they were like, what's happening? Like, in <laughs> fact, they were uttering those words, what's going on? Right? And we um, shut down that pretty woman mall and yeah. did a lot of work. And that was it. Yeah. That was the birth of it. When you talk about this intuitive knowing that you have to go north, that you have to disrupt these affluent white spaces to make a statement because right. it's not the community south on Crenshaw. Right. It's not the community that is suffering from the death of their sons 
at greater numbers than the communities you disrupted that needed to be disrupted. I know that there will be some people who hear this and wonder what that means, who say, you know, some people who will wonder what that means and who might say, you know, there were people driving down Wilshire that day going, what's going on? Like, tell us what's happening. Who would assume I have nothing to do with that? You know, I don't support what happened with Trayvon's killing. I I don't think that George Zimmerman should have been given his gun back. How, How to people who might not understand what you mean by that, do you educate on disrupting that system and how that system, even a community on La Cienega and Wilshire, how their system is supporting the system that let George Zimmerman off? Yeah. So a couple of things. One, most of you are responsible, right? If we think about like the majority of white people voted for Trump, right? Yeah. So you're responsible. All of this that's going on is your fault, right? And so there is a direct responsibility, Mm -hmm. right? But even if you go, well, I didn't vote for Trump, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I give money to Black Lives Matter, right? There's still a responsibility. Well, one, there is a... The weight of Blackness in this country is not something that can just be borne by Black people, Mm -hmm. right? So... The philosophy of disrupting white affluent spaces is about the fact that I say I'm not scared of anything, and I'm not, right? But I'll say that I'm very anxious about my son, and specifically my son. Mm. But I, you know, I, I'm concerned for all my children, mm-hmm. but specifically my son, who's now nine, who I'm starting to see his shoulders get broad, mm. right? And he was talking to me today, and I was like, his voice is a little deeper. Like, he's not going through puberty yet, but he's growing into—he's not a baby, right? And I feel like as he continues to grow, the target on his back gets bigger. Mm -hmm. And I don't know white moms who feel that about their sons. And so it can't just be a weight that I carry, right? I need you to care as much as I care. Mm -hmm. And so you will never know what it's like to be a Black mom. However, as long as these kinds of injustices happen in our communities, you don't get to just go and quietly eat brunch, right? You don't get to just go to Disneyland or go to the Grove. We like disrupting the Grove, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or, you know, have your meal quietly and say, I'm not responsible because... Mm -hmm. You are responsible. And, you know, part of what they're experiencing is a white privilege that just comes from whiteness, even if you didn't ask for it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it becomes your responsibility. I think, who was that who said that? Gillibrand, right? When she said it's white people, and specifically she talked about white suburban moms, mm-hmm. right? To, It's not just Black people's responsibility to handle racism, right? Mm -hmm. It's your responsibility. You built this racist system, right? And if you didn't personally, so what? You're still benefiting from it. And I think that the benefit and and this idea that you can divest from what's personal and what isn't, especially for white people, is dangerous and needs to be analyzed. 
because I loved what Gillibrand said. She just got frank and she said, look, I'm not saying your lives haven't been hard. If you live in one of those rural communities that has lost its hospital, whose jobs have shut down, whether it's the steel plant or the coal mine or whatever, those people are struggling, no question, and need help. But none of their struggle is because of the color of their skin. Right. It is not one of the things that has made their life harder. It is not one of the things that makes moms afraid to send their sons to school. It is not one of the things that means that a black boy buying a BB gun at Walmart gets shot in the back by a police officer and a white boy with an assault rifle at Walmart who murders 20 people gets taken peacefully. Right. This is this is crazy. Right. And and these are just facts. And I think if we can start to look at the facts and not have this like weird base reaction of like, but I'm a good person. I have nothing to do with right. that. It's like if you're if that's your response, then there's something in you that you're worried about or you have some sort of fear that you are, quote unquote, worse than you claim to be or whatever. And one of the things when we talk about the beneficiaries of the system that I would love to unpack with you mm. is the generational inheritance of mm. the system. Because I think, and I blame the degradation of our education system for a lot of this, you know, while we were trying to make progress with civil rights and, and, and the women's rights movement and, you know, Gloria and Dorothy were like speaking and marching and doing all the things, the GOP has been going after the education system for a long time. They've taken civics out of schools. They've let schools become religious and teach, you know, sex ed that isn't based on fact. I mean, things that are dangerous to the public health of a population. And when we lose our history, we make the same mistakes. Mm. And so for me, diving into what is historical inheritance look like, what wealth was allowed to be created for white people as landowners, as people who were able to get mortgages, where were mortgage lenders redlining, what communities couldn't be lent to, what after, you know, the great migration and, and the populace, uh, the populations of black people moving further into the north where white people ignorantly think, well, then they were just free. It's like, no, they weren't. They were pushed into ghettos. They were denied any sort of services, any sort of health care, any sort of safety right. long after what we consider freedom to mean. And when you look at the generational denial of wealth versus the generational support of wealth creation, and when you look at the generational inheritance of the energy of the police system, which I've learned through conversation, most people who look like me don't know that the police system literally comes from the system of slave catchers. Right. People don't know that slave catchers became police and that and that, that horrific part of American history laid the pattern for a modern system that people go, well, that's not possible, but there's generational behavior in that system that is proven. I don't care what side of the line you fall on here. The data proves it's dangerous for communities of color to have interactions with the police. Right. In fact, the data says if you want to keep Black people safe from police violence, the most important thing you can do is to limit the interactions. It's mm. the number of interactions. It's not implicit bias training. Mm. It's not uh, community policing. Mm. It's not the diversity of the officers. Mm. It's Black people just 
should not have interactions with the police. And that's how we stay safe from them. And it's interesting to me that diversity of officers doesn't affect the outcomes for communities of color. Right. Even officers of color are dangerous to communities of color. What do we do with all this? How do we unpack some of this generational reality to right. educate people on how to change the modern day system? Right. Well, I think it's one really important that we have the conversation about, you know, generational inheritance, right? And I always feel like, so by training, I'm a political scientist, right? So Mm -hmm. like these debates and all this stuff is like great for me. I love tuning into this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm having problems keeping up with 20 candidates, right? Yeah. And I... (laughs) At first, I was going, get these people off the stage. Who are these people, right? Mm. But this is the first time ever that I've had candidates who really inspired me, mm. right? I've had can- I've heard candidates who are talking about things that are really important, right? Not just the nuances of a healthcare system, which mm-hmm. I believe in Medicare for all, right? But I don't want to spend all the time talking about how that's going to work, right? They're Mm -hmm. also, I think it's important that Marianne Williamson is on that stage and that she was courageous enough to bring up what reparations look like. Mm -hmm. And she referred to it as a debt that is owed to Black people, a debt that is owed. And she's not the first person who said this. My dissertation was almost on reparations. But if we think about organizations like Encobra and people like Randall Robinson, and I know more recently people are looking at Ta-Nehisi Coates' work, mm-hmm. you know, they've been saying that. In fact, Randall Robinson's book is called The Debt, right? I think it's really important that we have this conversation. And if we think about it's not just individuals. So this is where a lot of white folks get nervous, right? Because they think you're going to come take my stuff. And I don't know if you cuss on here, but I want to. Oh, right? I do all the time. Okay, I can't good. help myself. So they think you're going to, they say, they're going to come take our shit, right? <laughs> right. That's not what it's about, right? It's not just about you as an individual, although you do owe a debt right? Individually, right? You Mm -hmm. owe a debt. And so we always say in terms of the Black Freedom Movement, everybody needs to be involved and they need to be giving their voice, their body, and their resources. You do owe some resource, right? And so there is an individual responsibility, but the bigger responsibility is that there are entire industries that are built on the backs of my ancestors. Mm -hmm. If we think about the insurance industry, right? Think about Why do you think companies are called State Farm and Farmers, right? What is that? They were insuring slave owners for the runaways or deaths of their property, their chattel, right? And so State Farm, I don't know what it's worth, but it's a multi-billion dollar company. They owe us, right? This country owes us. This country is built on stolen land of indigenous people and stolen labor of black people. Mm -hmm. They owe us. So when Marianne Williamson says, you know, at least 200 to 500 billion dollars and the debt is really in the trillions, right? That's a conversation that we need to have. Mm -hmm. Um, And more than a conversation, it's something that we need to be pushing for because it is like she said, and like Randall Robinson said before her, a debt that's owed. Well, and and when you start to look at it as a denial of equitable resource, right? It, it would be the same as if today 
I got a job, same job qualifications and amount of work as, as this guy over here. So it's me and it's the guy. And over the next 20 years, I'm held back. I'm denied raises. I'm denied promotions. I'm denied the same health benefits. And this guy gets every single benefit, promotion, bigger package, bonus. And we've done, we've done this work yet I'm here and he's advanced to here and he's created wealth for his family and I've been unable to create any. Right. And it's that same spread in a much more horrifically traumatic way and for generations for these communities. And that is something that I think a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their heads around and people, I I hear, because, you know, I read the good and the bad online because I need to understand where everyone's coming from Mm -hmm. as a bit of an amateur social scientist. And people who don't get the reparations conversation say, well, we we have nothing to do with what happened 200 years ago. And it's like, but you're missing the point that that there have been these bell curves that have come out of what happened and we've all ignorantly or consciously supported them and supported the ramifications and we've got to do something about it. We've got to even out the system in some way to give people a fair shake and a fighting chance. And, you know, when Marianne says two to 500 billion and I'm like, well, we just gave a $600 billion surplus to the military. Right. So we have the money. Right. You're just telling me we don't have it for people or we right. don't have it for healthcare or, or we don't have it for people. schools. Right. We don't yeah. have it for communities of right. color. Right. We don't have it for you. We have it. It's, it's about what we're investing in and why aren't we investing in each other? Right. Well, I think also that was a great explanation, especially as related to how de facto slavery continued after 1865, yes. right? But if we think about from 1619 to 1865, what mm-hmm. was happening mm-hmm. was the wholesale theft of Black labor, right? Mm-hmm. And Black people, right? Yeah, and humans. And, and human beings, right? And what that means economically yes. is it's like you took generations of wealth. It's like if you're a great, let, let's say it was your great, 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 great grandparents, right? They took my great, 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 great grandparents stuff. They came in and robbed their house, right? And they took everything that they had and then they died, but they passed on everything that they had to your great, great, great grandparents. Mm -hmm. And then they built the up even more, stole from my great, great, great grandparents. Mm -hmm. And then they passed that on to the, your great great grandparents. Yes. And then eventually you inherit it. Mm-hmm. And you say, I had nothing to do with it. No, but you still got my stuff, right. right? And how it plays out now, and this is how we can get to the gentrification piece, yeah. right? Is so I have I I live in the Crenshaw district, which at the time I moved into my neighborhood was about eighty to eighty-five percent black. My neighborhood is now about 60% black. And so there's these white folks moving in and our home prices, now I'm telling way too much of my business, but when I bought it, I was married at the time. Two of us with college degrees and fairly good jobs were able spent every penny we had to buy the house mm. that was at the time $300,000, right? And that's all we got, right? Mm. We can't spend more than $300,000, but we're 
relatively middle-class Black people who did that and bought this house for $300,000. The houses in my neighborhood are now going for a million and a half. And I'm going, there's no way, even if I were still married, I would not be able to buy this house, right? But the white people who are moving in and everybody who's moving in is white, they're not rich white people. So like we got a social worker and a teacher who just moved in down the street, right? Mm. How did you get that house, right? And I don't ask them that way, right? But as our children play together, there's conversations about the father gets a, he gets an actual allowance. He's in his 40s. He gets allowance from his father. A bunch of these folks are getting these, uh, you know, help with the down payment, right? A thousand dollars a month from some relative. Somebody died and left them something. My family doesn't have that. And so this is how we see kind mm-hmm. of this wealth disparity kind mm-hmm. of play out, the theft of Black wealth play out in terms of gentrification. And I think so many people, when they think about wealth or inherited wealth, assume that you have to be a Rockefeller to be inheriting wealth. And it's like, that isn't what the conversation is. What you're talking about, when a family can offer down payment support to their kids who are in their 30s or 40s, that is afforded by this generational experience that was offered to one community and stolen from another. Absolutely. And we're not saying that you shouldn't take down payment help from your... No. But it's it should have been... It sh- fairness is mm-hmm. that we all have what our families earned. Yes. And I think it's really important to depersonalize the reality of it in a way. Because I don't get offended. I don't feel attacked that two plus two equals four. Mm-hmm. I'm not like, well, to who? You know, and and so many people who look like me in this conversation are like, well, that, but that just, this is, they get so upset. And it's like, don't be upset. Learn, we have to learn our history, right. the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we have to figure out how to build a better system. Because by the way, the system that is better for you is also going to be better for me. Absolutely. White supremacy doesn't have anything for me either. Mm. It has nothing for me. Mm-hmm. I watched 63% of white women in America vote for Donald Trump. And I was like, you just voted for the husband you hate, for the guy who raped you in college, for the guy who assaulted you in the workplace, for that piece of shit that you go to work with every day who says disgusting shit to you about your ass. You just voted for a man who you hate because he feels familiar to you. Mm. For, for what? To uphold the the reality of your dad or some other guy in your life who told you he'd take care of you or that you deserved something or I, I don't understand like you voted so deeply against your own interests and look I know that there was help I know that there was bot farms running and Russian interference and stoking of division and you know now we have the data that proves that that the the people stoking that division online were doing so from the extremes of both sides. They were playing super conservative and super liberal, just trying to pull us all apart. Right. So when I come from my highest self, I'm like, I really feel for people and I want them to do better. And when I'm like 
in the trenches, I'm just like, what the fuck were you thinking? Right. You know, and, and, and I really think it's important for us, for white people, for white women, especially to not feel attacked when asked to look in the mirror, but to go, oh, that's really interesting. I can see this thing. I can see, regardless of how complicated my life is, what I've been through, the trauma I carry, the assault I survived, the whatever, because everybody's had it hard. And to say, and there's still all this stuff that exists in society that has my back in a way that other people aren't held. But what quote unquote has my back actually is still aiming to destroy me. Mm. Yeah. And if we go back to like the system of chattel slavery, the challenge I think that's being issued is don't be the mistress. Don't be the mistress of the house, right? Mm. So like a lot of white women want to, again, this it's this proximity to power, mm. right? Say, I'm better off being my husband's wife, right? Mm. And so I'm not going to dismantle systems of oppression. Mm. But you're also being oppressed, right? Mm -hmm. And so in order to ever be free, you know, maybe you get to wear the fancy dress and you don't have to be the one to pick the cut, right? But you're not free. Mm -hmm. And you're not free until you get up from the pedestal Mm -hmm. and say, I'm disrupting, I'm turning over this whole shit. And so that's what we want white women to do. I also think that point about white supremacy having nothing for you, I think that's right. Like, so what freedom looks like, and I'm not a white woman, so I can't really say from, (laughs) but what I imagine freedom looks like for white women now is not having to, I think part of that kind of white people and white women working themselves up into kind of this guilt-laden, protective, Space, right? Where they're saying, well, it wasn't me, right? Is about not being able to imagine more, right? So Toni Morrison passed this morning, right? And my favorite thing that she said is dream before you think. Mm -hmm. Dream before you think. And I think that. that as we Freedom has to be an imagining. It has to be a dream, mm-hmm. right? And we have to think about or dream about, right, what it would feel like to walk down the street and not have people like me, women like me, looking at you. And I'm going to be straight up. Like the white women who are pushing the strollers and walking their dogs in my neighborhood, I can't stand them. Now, personally, I might like them, but when I see them and I don't know them, I'm angry because with that comes phone calls on my kids, Mm -hmm. with that comes police protection, with that comes even you bringing your dog. And I like dogs, but I don't want your dog all up on my kids because your dog is not a person, right? Your dog doesn't get to take up more space on the sidewalk than my children. And you are assuring me, trying to assure me, oh, he's a, he's a good dog, right? You don't get to do that. And so I'm saying all that to say, I can guess that freedom for white women mm-hmm. means 
being able to walk through whatever neighborhood you move to with your dog and your stroller, because there's another, nothing fundamentally wrong with a dog and a stroller, mm-hmm. right? Without me feeling like I wish you weren't invading my space. Mm-hmm. I wish you weren't here, right? Not in the same way Kelly Lido Hernandez, I hope you've read her book, but she she has a what book is, called, What is her book called for people listening? Uh, City of Inmates. Okay. But a lot of her work looks at the history of settler colonialism mm. in this country. And in City of in- Inmates, she talks about, and I feel like especially with these mass shootings, right, that's the book everyone needs to read because she talks about the strategy of elimination, right? Uh, white supremacist patriarchal strategy of elimination, colonial mm. strategy of elimination. And so when I say... You know, I wish these white dog walkers weren't in my neighborhood, right? Except the ones that are now my friends, right? (laughs) Um, But again, um, if I can just say, that's the difference between a system and an individual. Right. The system, you are witnessing an encroachment in what felt like a safe space. And that feels like a signification that oppression is coming for you in your safe space. And every one of those women who you know, you're like, oh, she's cool. Right. And that's the difference. Right. Like Personally, you and I are cool. Right. right. But I And I, you have dogs. I, I don't right. not right. I do have dogs. <laughs> right. And I don't not feel like we're cool or we're friends when I talk about whiteness. We have to be able to separate the two. And right. you have to. And thank you for being vulnerable enough mm. right now to say, because a lot of people wouldn't say, like, yeah, this thing that's happening in my neighborhood bugs me. But I think it's so important to be able to say this is the thing that is triggering and and this is what it leads to and let's talk about what what colonization has always looked like and also I really like my neighbors. Right. Both things can be true at the same time. Right. And I think people who are afraid of having these conversations think it's because they're going to have to pick a side or it's going to turn into a war or they're mm. going to feel attacked or like you said like you're coming for my shit or like you're coming for me. That isn't it. Right. We have to almost academically be willing to look at the we have to look at the social experiment. We have to look at the system and yeah. figure out how to make it better. So th- yeah. I really appreciate you sharing oh, that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, that that sums it up. That that feeling sums it up. And if I can offer something cuz as I'm hearing you tell that story, I'm going, "Oh, right." What's interesting is I've never been in any neighborhood I've ever lived in, whether it's like all over Los Angeles, whether it was living down at USC and being down in, you know, off of Crenshaw, whether it was living in the South. I lived all, I lived in North Carolina. I lived in Chicago. I've never been in a place where I felt like somebody on the sidewalk wasn't safe. Mm. So I've always felt safe. So I've always been the one out walking the dog like, what's up, neighbor? Like, because it's the neighborhood. Right. But that is where my privilege comes in, Mm. where someone on the sidewalk has never posed a threat to me. Someone on the sidewalk has never been a person who's going to call the police on my, for this, for the sake of this argument, my hypothetical children. Like, and so that's not a thing I've ever had to think about. Right. But what I will say is, since 2013, since these conversations have come to the forefront, since I have tried to sit at the feet of women like you in my community and learn how to be a better 
community member, I'm very conscientious when I'm out on a walk, when I'm out anywhere, I am so conscious of what my interactions look like with people of color in my community. Yeah. I, I, I no longer have the privilege of being the aloof person who's like on my phone and doesn't make eye contact with people. And because I now know from conversations like this, a girlfriend of mine lives in Venice and has lived there for 10 years. And we were talking about the way Venice is really gentrified. And she said, you know, the difference in our experience is that you could walk down Abbott Kinney to go to Jolina takeout and get a coffee in the morning. Mm -hmm. And if nobody looked at you, nobody would look at you and you'd be like, everybody's tired. She's like, but if I walk down Abbott Kinney to go to GTA to get a coffee and none of the 12 people I pass makes eye contact with me, I think, is this because I'm tired or is this because I'm a black woman? Right. And when she said that to me, I was like, holy shit. Right. There are, there are just circumstances that there are hoops you jump through in your body that I never will understand. So it is my duty to learn and to make sure that I'm very conscientious of who's around me and how I am either ignorantly isolating or consciously welcoming. Mm. I keep playing with the idea. So one of my one of my best friends is white. (laughs) (laughs) One of my best friends, Molly, um, we always play around about, you know, how to address things. And the reason we're so tight is because I can just talk about, you know, shit. Right. And I say, you know what we should write? I should write or I should write something about like how to how to not be a gentrifier. Right. Like just basic shit. Like when I was walking with my kids the other day in the neighborhood, there was this white guy. This time it was a white guy with a dog. And he looked me in the eye and said, hey, how you doing? And me and my kids all went, you know, like it was I'm sure he heard us gasp. And I'm like, that's how to be a white neighbor, not a gentrifier. Right. I didn't know him, but he saw us. He, He also pulled his dog off of the sidewalk so it didn't take up space for my children. And Mm -hmm. I thought that was like, I'm like, he could teach a class. Mm -hmm. He needs to teach a class. I think the point I was going to make, because I had lost track of Mm -hmm. where I was going with this gentrification piece, is around the settler colonialism stuff that Mm -hmm. um, Kelly writes about in City of Inmates, right? That when I say I wish we just had our own space, I, I miss the 85% Black neighborhood, right? Mm. It's about establishing what you call, like, and holding on to what you call safe space, right? A mm. space where I know none of my, like, I remember when I first moved in, the teenagers across the street were hopping the fence. And my natural instinct was to go, hey, what you doing? Why are you hopping that fence, right? Somebody else's instinct would be, to call the police because young black men are probably breaking into a house, right? They turned out to be, I had just moved in, didn't know them, the kids that lived there and they had locked themselves out, right? Mm -hmm. So it feels safe to me because I know that my kids, when they're hopping the fence or going in the back door or doing whatever, Mm -hmm. the black neighbors are going to go, do you live there? And 99.9% of the time they know them. So they'll mm-hmm. say, are you locked out? Want me to call your mama? You know, yeah. something like that. So that's what we're trying to establish. But when 
gentrifiers move into our neighborhood. I had one neighbor who I'm tight with now who said, I remember driving up here and I drive down Washington and look down the street and I'd say, that's a totally undiscovered neighborhood. Yikes. And I'm discovered by who? This, yeah, I said, who are you, Christopher Columbus? Like, what does that mean? We lived here. What are you talking about, undiscovered? And so this whole idea of manifest destiny, like contemporary manifest destiny, gentrification is really like urban colonialism, right? Is also entrenched in this settler colonial idea that I think is tied back. I'm a little disturbed about the conversations as they're unfolding, and I hope that we can disrupt them somehow around these mass murders, the acts of white supremacist terrorism, Mm. and them boiling it down to, oh, it's just a overwhelming sense of hate. No, they're not driven by hate. They're driven by greed and entitlement and the idea that white people own this country. If you read what they're now calling the screed by the El Paso murderer, Right? And he quotes Trump over and over and over again. He, he quotes Trump over and over and over again. But he also says, now I know you're going to say that I'm hypocritical because when I talk about the invasion, what do Native read the whole thing. What do Native Americans would say that about Europeans? But I've learned my lesson from Native Americans that you can't allow, and I, I don't want to be quoting Yikes. him too much, but his whole idea, what he's driven by, is articulated as settler colonial ideals. He's articul- He's telling you, I have a settler colonial philosophy, mm-hmm. and that's what drove him to murder all of those 22 people who are now dead. Right. And so it's really important that we understand that when we talk about white supremacy and white supremacist violence, it's Mm -hmm. not just a matter of thinking or feeling. And this is what you're kind of getting to. It's not just about the individual. Mm -hmm. It's about the system. So if we're in a system Mm -hmm. that's a settler colonial system Mm -hmm. that's built on stolen land and stolen labor, it's about examining that system and figuring out how to transform things in such a way that usher in fairness and safety and peace yes. and love and all of the things that we all want. And they're so intrinsically tied. I have goosebumps, literally, like running down mm-hmm. my legs right now. And when we think about that settler colonial mentality, again, the intrinsic connection between the impression of people of color and how it was rooted in the oppression of indigenous people here in America by in the Columbus era is so deeply tied to the oppression of women. Mm-hmm. You can read Columbus's writing and he talks he talks openly about his shock that the native women weren't willing to be taken as sex slaves. Right. The, the idea that they have the rights to the bodies of humans and the rights to the bodies of women, you know, the the reason that I think the scarcity mentality and and the and the politics of that proximal power to supremacy really got to I mean look let's be real it's gotten to white women for a long time but really got to white women in the Trump election is because he was preying on this notion that you're about to have less you're about to lose mm-hmm. right. you're and it's like well we've always lost at the hands of those men right you are the you are the reason that one in four women is sexually assaulted by the time she's 22 
Mm. I don't know a single woman who doesn't have a story. I don't either. Not a single woman mm. in my life is without a story of an assault. None. And many, too many to count. Yes. Right? I, I can't name every. And, and then what happens is we talk about it on a scale. Well, that guy wasn't so bad, but this one. Right. And it's like, no, it's all bad. Right. You know, so. It used to be the norm to go to a party and get your ass grabbed. Yeah. That was like, you knew you were going to get your ass grabbed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you were told to take it as a compliment. Mm-hmm. And so if we want to undo any oppression, we have to undo all oppression. Right. It's important to make sure we're prioritizing our health. But no matter how much kale we eat or how many green smoothies we drink, we are still missing out on some of the essential nutrients that we need every day. That's where Ritual comes in. It is the obsessively researched vitamin for women that has all the nutrients we need with no shady additives or ingredients that harm your body. Ritual's essentials come in two easy-to-take capsules, which have a no-nausea design, thank you, so you can take them on an empty stomach. Also, they have a mint tab in every bottle, so you don't get that weird fishy aftertaste that's common with most omega-3s. And the reason I love it the most For obsessive label readers like me, all of their vegan-friendly, sugar-free, non-GMO, gluten-free, and allergen-free ingredients and their sources are out there for the whole world to see. For just $1 a day, you can get Ritual's Essentials delivered right to your door. Better health doesn't happen overnight. And right now, Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during your first three months. You can fill in the gaps in your diet with Essential for Women. It's a small step that helps support a healthy foundation for your body. Visit ritual.com slash W-O-R-K to start your ritual today. That's 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com slash work. One of the things that I have been so fascinated by in our conversations is you're educating me on the difference between investing in police services and investing in citywide policy reform, which would take funding, which is oddly given to the police to do things that aren't even their job and that would give funding more to social workers, more right. to social programs, more more funding that would actually take the, uh, if we want to call it, the, the burden of too much work off of the police force or just mm-hmm. stop making them responsible for things they shouldn't be responsible for and actually get into community safety and protection. And I would love you to speak to that a little bit because I think this stuff is really fascinating and I think that the listeners would be really wowed by it. So I think it's part of, again, dreaming before you think, right? Mm -hmm. Dreaming allows us to kind of see a vision that's not tied to the what is, but what can be, Mm -hmm. right? And so um, everybody wants to live in a safe community. You Mm -hmm. know, we've talked a lot about me being a mom. We want to live in a safe community. We want to make sure our children can walk home safely, Mm -hmm. right? And as a Black mother, I know my children are less safe when there's police around. So what does a system of public safety look like? Mm. And I remember um, when I first moved to Los Angeles, I lived in Leimert Park area, and I didn't know what was happening. But every morning, 
the old people would come out and sit on the porch. And as I lived there, I started having conversations with them. Like, I was like, oh, everybody must be from Louisiana because Louisiana and Texas, right? We all, Mm -hmm. my grandparents sat on the porch, but not that early. And as I was having conversations with folks, they had created a system in the neighborhood where they would come out from seven to eight to watch the children walk to school. And that's public safety, right? That's public safety in the sense that they knew the children, right? If the children, I remember some of the kids getting told of, getting called to the porch for cussing, right? As they were walking. Mm -hmm. I want that for my children. What I don't want is men with guns standing on corners, Mm -hmm. right? I want the grandmas and grandpas on the porch watching my children get to school safely. And so if we think about what we've invested in, what um, most major cities have invested in, um, spent our tax dollars on, Mm. they're overspending on police. So our city's general fund, and we now spend 53% of our city's general fund on LAPD. So all the money in the general fund in all of Los Angeles... 53% of it. And that's not including, you know, that's not public safety overall. That's not fire, right? That's not straight up LAPD, 53%. And it doesn't include the contracts that LAPD gets with like the parks, right? Who give them a share of their budget too, right? Mm -hmm. 53%. Why would we be spending 53% of our city's general fund on police when we know that police actually don't make communities safe. There are studies that say, in fact, let me give a real good example. So there was a brother named Grishario Mack who was killed on April 10th, 2018. He was inside the Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Mall, which is the Black Mall in LA, right? And at about five o'clock in the afternoon, he was seen inside the mall talking to himself, and he had a kitchen knife, which let me lift up for the listeners. It is not illegal to have a kitchen knife. In fact, he was standing in front of TJ Maxx where they sell kitchen knives, right? And so it wasn't illegal to have the kitchen knife. He was standing there clearly dealing with some kind of mental health issue, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Security, who we've talked to in the mall, said they didn't see him as dangerous. They just wanted him to leave the mall because... People were uncomfortable with him there, right? But he wasn't attacking anybody, threatening anybody. Somebody called 911. The police come bounding up the escalators, and this is a quote from one of the patrons, with every gun blazing, and they murder Grishario in the middle of the mall. They don't even bother to clear the mall first. And then after they shot him and he was on the ground, they stood over him and shot him more. God. I'm lifting that up because someone who is having a mental health break should not have the police called on them. Mm. If we thought about the best use of city resources, what if we had a mental health team Mm. where when somebody is having a mental health, it's a health issue, they could be dispatched. Mm -hmm. They could figure out, how do I talk him down, right? They could figure out, well, is he on medication? Did he take his medication? Mm -hmm. Who are his loved ones, right? Who can we call in to give him support? 
right? And I think I know that there's cities like Jackson, Mississippi, cities like Newark, New Jersey, where they're beginning to explore reallocating public dollars to investing them in, you know, more mental health providers, to investing Mm -hmm. them in, you know, parks don't need police in the parks. They need more youth workers in the parks, right? They're investing them in intervention and prevention work. So even things that we think of traditionally as crime, right, doesn't have to be something that's addressed in the same kind of, with the same kind of occupational style and style of confrontation that police engage, that these are people, what um, the mayor in Newark has done, Raz Baraka, is hire people, many of them formerly incarcerated, who are from the neighborhoods. And mm-hmm. when something goes down in the neighborhood, they go and have conversations with people who respect them, right? Mm-hmm. And so we need to be willing to engage in radical imaginings and dreaming before thinking mm-hmm. and envisioning a world that actually creates safety, not just policing. Right. There's an interesting insight for me here um, because, again, I don't lump the people in with the system. And I have an interesting purview, I believe, into policing because I worked on a police show for almost five years of my life. You know, I, I spent a lot of time entrenched in that community. And I asked the officers who... I was close to, and one of whom I am still close to, who I talked to about a lot of this stuff. We had a lot of deep conversations about their opinions on this. And their willingness to say, oh, no, no, the system is broken. Hmm. We love our brothers. We love our community. We die for each other. But something is changing, and it's affecting everybody. And when I ask why does this, like I show a video of Laquan McDonald, I show a video of, you know, any of these body cam footage or dash cams that come out eventually, because of course they don't give them to us right away. And I say, why does it become like this? And they talk about the way their training has become increasingly militarized and how they're not trained to diffuse situations anymore. They're trained at the moment a hand is raised and there's something in it, they're trained to shoot and you're trained to shoot to kill, not to shoot to wound. This is a problem. And they're not encouraged or required to go for mental health check-ins or therapy. You, you, are, you are effectively building a bomb. You are putting a person in a hyper-realized state, telling them that every single person who they encounter is going to try to kill them. And if they do, they have to try to kill them first. But what does it really mean to try to be killed? Like the adrenaline is crazy. You can't hear. It's hard to see. And if one of those officers discharges a weapon and kills someone, they have no mental health requirements to process what that means. It gets glazed over and then they're told they did a good job. And then we wonder why it happens again. And I, I have listened to some of these guys tell me what a toll it's taken on them. Yet the system remains the same and the system is killing people. And it makes me feel the same way when I say, like, white supremacy has nothing for me mm-hmm. as a white woman. I have seen how the system doesn't have anything good for the people who are even a part of it. And I see the devastation that it wreaks across communities across the country. Mm. And so I hope that being able to solely focus on the problem of the system can inspire all of us to try to make it better, 
can inspire us to say, yeah, I want more of my city dollars going to social work programs, going to, you know, community uplift forces, going, it, it, it doesn't need to be this. Yeah. And I think part of when we say this, right, when we say dream before you think, or when we mm-hmm. say radical imagination, or mm-hmm. people go, yeah, but how do you get to that? And it feels like this big, overwhelming task, right? Mm-hmm. But really, all we're talking about is a budgeting process, right? <laughs> Just move some right. money. It's not that hard to move some money, right? We have cities that are moving the money. Move some money. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, I define myself as an abolitionist, right? And people go, well, what does that mean? What are we going to do? abolitionist, a womanist, (laughs) you got good words. But abolitionism doesn't just mean tearing down systems that are oppressive, right? So most people associate abolitionism with the end of slavery, right? Mm -hmm. Abolishing slavery. I believe in the abolition of prisons and police. That doesn't mean I don't believe in public safety, and it doesn't mean that you know, I don't prioritize that, right? I just think it can look very different. Mm. And I think that also a lot of times as abolitionists, we only think about the tearing down or what's illuminated is the tearing down, right? Mm. So we be, we highlight the protests and, you know, we they want to abolish the police. Yes, and we want to build community safety teams. We want to build, you know, the gra- maybe it could be the grandma mm. brigade, right? And it's not that hard to do. Mm. And so when you think about it, like those grandparents were doing it. That was abolitionist work. And you didn't have stuff happening in the neighborhood. Mm. And so the police weren't there. Well, they were, but they they were kind of kept at bay, right? And so we can, it's not as overwhelming of a task as it seems. It's totally doable, right? Mm. I mean, if they did abolish slavery, slavery did, chattel slavery came to an end. If the people before us were able to do that, then it should be a relatively easy feat to say policing as we know it should no longer exist. Let's establish a system of public safety and work towards it and see it come to fruition. Not a hundred years from now, I'm talking in the near future, in my lifetime. Mm. Something I like to ask people at the beginning, but we just went, we went there, (laughs) we went right in and I skipped one of my favorite questions, but but I'm thinking about it now thinking historically, Mm. I sit across from so many people who I'm so in awe of. Mm. And I'm so in awe of where you are in this moment in your life. And then I I go, were you like this when you were little? I'm fascinated about who people (laughs) were as kids. And and who were you as a kid? Were Were you always wise? Were you always so sensitive. Where, like, who is little Melina? I'm so curious. <laughs> yes, I was always like this. I don't know that I would call myself wise now. I, I hear. So mm. I was always like this. I always had a big mouth, mm. right? I always was taught by my mom and my grandpa especially that I could do anything, you know? And it's Like, I feel like we've spent a lot of time on kind of the heaviness of this work. Mm -hmm. And, but I always found 
this, like using my voice and speaking up for whatever, mm. fun. Like it's fun. Mm-hmm. Like it's, I think so too. It gives me life. Like, no, you don't have to sit there and listen to this fool talking about crazy stuff. How the hell is Donald Trump going to call Elijah Cummings a racist, right? Come on, man. Like, we don't have to sit here and listen to it and like just hear it. One, we need to talk about how ridiculous that shit is. And I know that we shouldn't just be laughing at it, but it's it's like bizarro world. No, it's right? truly it, crazy. Yes. It's like a person looking at you and saying, the sky is yellow. And you're like, the sky is blue. And they go, are you blind? It's yellow. And you're like, what? Where Where do I, Where are we? I mean, right. it's that crazy <laughs> right. to where you're like, hello? Are right. we are we right. are we in the same dimension? Like what's happening? Right. Right. So I don't know. I think I grew up just feeling like I could always use my voice. Mm. Always feeling like um I was deeply loved. And sometimes I talk about mothering. Mm-hmm. Um and <laughs> I remember talking with this group of young moms and I said and one of them came up to me recently and I said to them None of this shit is that deep. And they were like, what? And I was like, even that we're having having this forum on mothering and there was this one, I, I, I said, I stressed myself out because I sent my son to school and he left his lunch bag in the car. And then he called me from school like, mama, bring me my, but I couldn't get back to the school to bring him his lunch, right? And then I had to remember, school only goes from eight to three. You are not going to starve between eight and three. When you get home, you can have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? Like none of it's that deep, Mm. right? Like we take on a lot of responsibility and act like everything is so deep. But I think that how I was raised and how I try to live is just pouring love into what I care about, firstly, my children, but also my community, the world that I live in, Mm. pour the love in it. And I'm going to make mistakes. Like my son left his, I didn't look back to see, did he get his lunch? Right. So part of it was on me to not look back, but so what, just keep it moving. And you're going to make a misstep. And sometimes people are going to get mad at you, but so, so what, just keep it moving and living love and living your purpose. And I think my mom and my grandpa taught me a lot about that. Mm. Yeah. What was it like growing up with them? Because you were you were in East Oakland in the 70s. Right. What's But I'm 29. What's the other right. <laughs> right. I have been for a long time. What's the what's the what's the vibe? Like what what is community like and what's your family like? Um, my community was complicated, but my, like the first word I wanted to use was it was magical and amazing. Mm. And I'm saying that as someone who witnessed, I don't even know how many of my friends get murdered, right? Who experienced, like we found a body in the dumpster when we were little kids, right? Like grew up, I I came of age during the height of the crack cocaine epidemic in East Oakland where it was really hitting hard. And if I were to give the first word, it was magical. It was amazing. It was a community filled with love. Mm -hmm. My grandpa used to like sit on the front porch 
all day long and we'd come home from school and sit with him on his front porch and eat watermelon. I know that's a terrible thing to say as a Black person, but watermelon is delicious. I don't care if it's a stereotype. It's Also, that's like, that's California. We're, we have produce. We're very lucky. Yes. My grandpa would slice yeah. open a watermelon and he's from Louisiana, right? Mm. So he would slice open a watermelon and we'd eat them like out of a, it would be a bowl, right? You turn it into a bowl and you just eat with the a whole, spoon. With a, oh, eat the whole, and we'd thing. sit there and we would, he would tell me stories mm. and it was amazing. And my mother, who was a single mom and a teacher, she would always come home from school late and she had like a old Volvo station wagon and it would hit the block and you could hear it like a block away. And all the kids in the neighborhood, we lived in a almost all black neighborhood would come running down the street and sit on our front porch and they would yell, it's time for school. And my mom would sit on that porch with them until the sun went down and teach all the kids in the neighborhood to read. And mm-hmm. um, my grandma, who I don't give as much credit as I should, taught me how to cook. So every Sunday I never miss church, right? So we go to church and my kids think they're in church a long time when it's like two hours but we'd be there from nine o'clock in the morning to about two o'clock in the afternoon. And we'd have a break and cook in the church basement, right? So we'd have hamburgers and coffee, I remember, and seven up cake in the church basement. And then we would go home after church service and I would be at my grandma's house and we would just cook and talk and look at JC Penney's magazines, uh, catalogs. The catalogs. And it was just really beautiful. And Mm -hmm. it was like the entire community took care of each other. And everybody from, you know, my grandparents who were there to my mom to, I remember there was a sex worker is what we call them now, right? Mm -hmm. Who had a son that my brother was friends with. And she would come and teach us a lot, like about being a woman and don't let these men do. And it was you know, she was hel- she helped raise me in a way, you know, and it was just a really beautiful community. And I think that they talk about, there's a, a author named Jawanza Kunjufu t- who talks about when ghettos become slums and that there's nothing wrong with a ghetto. And so I was raised in a ghetto. And I was raised, our neighborhood was called, you know, Funk Town. And it was what they would call a gang neighborhood, but they were my family. And so when I think about this now, and I'm sorry for talking so long. No, I love it. When I think about it now and like the criminalization of the people who were killed by police and mm-hmm. how they go, oh, he was a gang member. So what's that mean? He was a gang member. Was he committing a crime? Right. So I think about people like Ryan Twyman, who was 24 years old, just killed last month by L.A. County sheriffs. Mm -hmm. 24 sitting in his car in an apartment building that's considered, you know, has gang members in the apartment building. But he wasn't doing anything but sitting in the car unarmed. They snatch open his back door and kill him 34 shots and then go back to their cruiser, get a an assault weapon. And continue to kill him with the assault weapon, right? And then what do what does the county sheriff do? They say basically he deserved it because he was a gang member. 
I don't care that he was a so-called gang member. When I was 24 years old, you would have called me one because I lived in Funktown, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter to me. For me, that neighborhood was love, right? For me, that's where my first boyfriend, Almers Jones, was from, right? (laughs) Um, For me, it was where I got love and support and was nurtured into becoming Mm -hmm. the woman that I am, right? Even I dropped out of traditional high school, but my neighborhood knew I shouldn't have dropped out of traditional high school. And everybody was like pushing me to go back. And like when I come back now and there's a couple of people that I grew up with that I'm friends with now, you know, still friends with. And they say things like, you know, we weren't even supposed to be alive, you know. Mm. And it was my neighborhood that kept me alive, that kept my brother alive. My brother was crazy and, you know, was like the other boys in the neighborhood, did stuff that would have gotten him imprisoned these days, right? Mm. In the 80s and 90s, it didn't send him to prison. What does that mean? So I remember this one incident when my brother and a bunch of the boys who were like probably preteens, like about 12, maybe 11 or 12, had broken into an empty apartment unit in the housing projects that were across the street from our house. And they took some of the supplies and began to throw paint out the window. They were 11 and 12. That was stupid. And they should get a whooping, right? Because my mama whooped them, right? But and, And what wound up happening is police did grab them and they put them in the back of the car. And they drove them home because they knew my mama was going to whoop him. If 11 and 12-year-olds break into an apartment now and do what 11 and 12-year-olds do, which is naughty but is not criminal, right? Mm -hmm. These kids would have been taken from their mothers. They would have been incarcerated. And they'd have to live with that process of criminalization for the rest of their lives. We are now in a system that is completely unforgiving. You know, I've shoplifted before. I don't think I've ever said that publicly, but I've shoplifted many times before, right? I've gone to jail before, right? But all of those things were things that, you know, when I was arrested for the first time in Berkeley, California, my mom recently handed me like my arrest record from Berkeley. And it said like, if she doesn't do anything else for the next year, this record will be destroyed, right? That doesn't happen anymore, right? And so that's what I mean when I say like, the system was forgiving of my brother and of me. Mm. But now we would have had a different fate. Well, and there's such a rigidity now. And and even when I when I hear you talk about you know, the neighborhood and the boys in the neighborhood and how they would have been described as gang members. I wonder about what that means when people hear the term because so much of what we know when it hasn't been our life is what we see on TV. Right. And we think gang member means murderer, means someone who kills someone to get in a gang, means someone who is a drug dealer, means... And that's much more often than not, not the case. Right. And, you know, people get identified as gang members, I now know from my police experience. If they're on the same block as a person who is 
confirmed in a gang, if they're seen at the same street corner, then all those kids seen with that one kid are gang members by association. That's how the police legally are allowed to identify you now. I know a kid who was just released from jail who went to jail on an associate to murder charge because he was standing next to a guy who got shot in the butt in an altercation. Right. And when people hear that, they go, that's not, they can't do that to you. But they did this to this boy. And so I think, A, there has to be a reassessment with what we believe these definitions to mean. And B, we also have to understand that nobody is to be equated to the worst thing they've ever done. Right. And yes, to all of that. And I actually think kids who grow up in gang neighborhoods aren't really doing things that are that bad. It's the same. White, affluent kids do much worse. And they're not criminalized for that behavior, Mm -hmm. right? I think it's part of, you know, it's systemic. It's intentional. Manning Marable talks about that, right? Like these systems were intentionally designed to produce these outcomes. The criminalization of Black people, right? Even the killing of Black people at the hands of police. It's not accidental. The disparity in sentencing between cocaine and crack, for example. Right, right. So it's all intentional. And we have to remember that children have the right to be children. So like now that I've opened up the can of worms about shoplifting, I won't share this with my mom, right? (laughs) The first time I shoplifted, I was in the sixth grade. And I actually was in Berkeley and my mom had moved me from my neighborhood elementary school to a white private elementary school in Berkeley, like the super white liberal elementary school. And all the kids were rich, right? And the only two black kids I remember, black girls I remember were me and Whoopi Goldberg's Goldberg's daughter, Alex, right? And so these rich white girls, there was some sleepover, wanted to go steal some stuff from this toy store called Mr. Mops, right? So we went into Mr. Mops and we put a whole lot of shit in our backpacks. We got away with it. And then this is how a sixth grader's mind works. We decided we needed to go back. And in my mind, I'm thinking, Mr. Mops workers see thousands of people. They'll never recognize us again because there's thousands of people. Because I'm 10 or 11 years old and I don't get, no, they remembered that you were just in here an hour ago, right? But I'm thinking, Mr. Mops is this big toy store. Thousands of people come in and out. And so that's how we were grabbed because we were stupid enough to go back and believe it, right? Kids have the right to make those kinds of dumb mistakes, Mm -hmm. right? Not just about that I could go back and get more. We could go back and get more, right? But, you know, to take things that don't belong to you, you need to be corrected But it shouldn't be a criminal justice system that does it. And Mm -hmm. I think that this is the work of people like Brian Stevenson and others that is just incredible. If you look at what's happened since the height of kind of mass youth incarceration Mm -hmm. um, in the 90s with the passage of things like Prop 21 that gave discretion to prosecutors instead of judges about, you know, children and how they were charged. Mm we've seen a dramatic decrease in the criminalization of children. 
especially in places like California. In San Francisco, um, there's virtually no children who are incarcerated, Mm -hmm. right? And it's because people are starting to make choices and starting to recognize, especially almost everybody is a parent, right? Mm. Kids do dumb shit. You you did dumb shit, right? Like, so we shouldn't be losing lives and traumatizing, further traumatizing these children for doing the dumb shit that they're supposed to do because they're kids, right? Mm-hmm. And really affords an opportunity to teach lessons. I remember, remember, kid, I don't know, you're not really that old. So when I was growing up, we had fights at school all the damn time. Like we were always fighting and we thought we wouldn't get suspended if you waited till three o'clock. In fact, you wouldn't wait till three o'clock and fight off of school grounds. Then you could fight and then somebody got beat up. And then you go home, and if the school found out about it, you had to go in and write some shit. I will not fight anymore. You know? Oh, my God. Lines. Yeah. When you had to write sentences on the board when you got in trouble. Yeah. Do you know what fights are called at school now? Mm-mm. Assault and battery. And I think that's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, they're kids. They're children, right? We've all had fights. I hit Damon Skillern in the nose in the first grade because he tried to kiss me. I remember being in the fourth grade, and I can't think of what the boy's name was. He was a sixth grader, and he hit my best friend, Matt, and I kicked the sixth grader in the nuts. Great. Like a swift kick to the nuts. He dropped. (laughs) Then it was a whole thing where he was embarrassed because he got beat up by a girl. But I was like, you're bigger than my, you know, sixth and fourth grade. Like the boys are very differently developed. And I was just like, you pick on kids your own size. And the irony of like this tiny, scrawny little girl like standing (laughs) over this sixth grader who was in the fetal position, screaming at him about how he should pick on somebody as big as him. And I was like half the size of my friend Matt. But I mean, he clocked him. Right. And none of us got in trouble. Right. It was just like a playground thing. And that was over. I got in trouble in fifth grade when I stole an eraser, and that's when I had to write sentences on the board (laughs) after school. Kids take stuff. They do stuff. I even think about, you know, you're talking about your brother and his friends, like, playing in a, you know, construction space, throwing paint around, like... I'm an adult and sometimes I go through construction sites. I'm just really curious about <laughs> houses. Like I straight up will pull over like uh-huh. in the neighborhood and be like, ooh. And if a gate's open, I'll just go wander around. I've never right. thought that I was going to get arrested for that. Right. And you won't. I right. would. Right. You won't. Right. Right. And, and but isn't it in the schoolyard fight, mm-hmm. little white kids are not going to go to jail for the schoolyard fight. But my son will. Right. You know? Well, and interesting that the way that we are policing younger and younger children is becoming more and more aggressive. Mm-hmm. You know, they they wouldn't they wouldn't have. I don't think schools were calling it assault. No, when I was eight, but no. now that's a thing. That's crazy, right? Well, and this is something that's interesting to me is the disparity in whether it's potential or actual punishment, because. When I think about the work you do today Mm -hmm. and I think about the courage that it requires to step outside and do it, I think about the difference again, let's say it's you and me at a protest, the difference in what happens to us because you were charged with assaulting a police officer uh, in a courtroom and the irony that you were, that that the man Here's this. So the story goes, he got grabbed on the arm while he was walking, you know, 
somebody out of a courtroom. So to be gr- out of the police commission meeting, right? It was a police commission meeting. Uh-huh. Thank you. So the I'm like people grab me by the arm all the time, like strangers on the street who are like, "Hey, Brooke Davis, like, can I take a picture with you?" I'm like, "Is that assault?" I'm confused. So this feels ridiculous to begin with. That like grabbing somebody by the arm and saying, "Hey, like, go easy on this kid," could be assault. But what makes it even crazier to me is that another woman said, I'm the one who grabbed the officer by the arm, but she's a white woman. Right. And yet the LAPD charged you with assault and then they managed to drum up seven other charges. So they charged you with eight, was it eight misdemeanors altogether? So this could have potentially carried a prison sentence of a year. And that's if they did them as concurrent, not as consecutive. Consecutive would have been three and a half years. Wow. And I guess what what's interesting to me is that despite someone else saying, no, I grabbed the cop, and despite every witness in the courtroom saying, we didn't see Melina do that, and despite you saying, I absolutely did not do that, they were pressing you, and it feels to me as an observer, like this is a policing of dissent. Like this Absolutely. is a policing of your voice. There are, and, and, and in that, in that article that, uh, I, I got the scourge quote from, I, mm-hmm. I get real nerdy on my homework. They said something that I found really interesting that this has, and, and to quote, this has far ranging implications for free speech in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is not the only city-led effort to silence activists. The city council also recently created a new set of rules against public disruptions aimed at banning those who disrupt LA city council meetings from attending future meetings, which went into effect last January. Public disruption is a time-honored activist strategy to bring pressure to bear on government officials. And your lawyers went on to say publicly that the city is treating legitimate forms of dissent as a crime. Yes. And it is our right, our constitutional right, to free speech and to protest. We are meant to hold our government accountable because right. it's meant to be a government for us. So what does it look like as an activist today when when we think about how kids are getting treated, when we think about how activists are getting treated, when we think about disparate punishment, depending on what community you fall into? How do you, how do you, how do you get up every morning? Um, so that, so I actually was tired of going to police commission meeting, but when Mm -hmm. they tried to ban me from it and, you know, talk about all, criminalize me for going, I'm, I'm never missing another police commission meeting. Right. right? So that's part of how I get up because I, I actually get inspiration and feel like I'm living in my purpose by doing this shit. Right. Like I don't want to just sit home and watch TV or, you know, play games or whatever. There's stuff that needs to be done and I enjoy it. It's like um, artists and their art, right? Like I have to live in it, right? Mm, So It's like artists and their art. Yeah, this is is the thing that you make with that inner duty. Yeah, it's my purpose, right? I believe it's my purpose, right? Sacred duty, right? Yeah. And what happened was absolutely the criminalization of black protests specifically, mm-hmm. right? And so there were other mm-hmm. people who'd been arrested before I was arrested in other incidents, mm. all of them black, white folks, 
um, had been arrested, but not charged. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there was one of the charges that they tacked on um, was about an arrest when we did a disruption after a brother named Carnell Snell was murdered Mm -hmm. and they found his murder in policy. And we began to chant his name. And I, along with two of my white comrades, white women comrades, who understand that their freedom is bound up with mine, Mm -hmm. right, all got arrested together. Mm -hmm. But you were the only one charged. I was the only one charged. Mm -hmm. And so they wouldn't, they never charged, um, her name is Gina, who said that she's the one that touched the officer's arm. I did not. I'm sitting here until I saw there was video evidence, right? Until I saw the video and that I absolutely did not touch this officer, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sitting here racking my brain going, did I brush him on the way out? Because what was happening is they were trying to escort out the aunt of a woman named Waikisha Wilson, who had been killed inside LAPD jail. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to make sure she was okay. Her name is Sheila. I wanted to make sure she was okay. And then when I got arrested too, I'm going, well, what did I do? You mm-hmm. know. And so there is a deliberate effort, I believe, to not just silence protest, but silence Black protest. Mm-hmm. Because part of what happens when you say, you know, why am I not following Black women, right, is I think when Black people engage in protest, we're less bound and tied to the system. Mm. And so our protest looks a lot more radical. You know, our protest um, is much more far-reaching in terms of what we want. And, and so silence that. Mm. Yeah. And I think people looking at it from the outside are afraid of the energetic power of it. Mm-hmm. Because whether they're consciously aware or not, in in my observation of the power of the protest of black women, it feels so big and to your point, maybe so radical because it carries the energy of life and death stakes. Mm, right. And I remember that guy who made the sign at the first women's march in D.C. that was like, oh, am I going to see all y'all nice white ladies at the next Black Lives Matter protest, mm-hmm. which I thought was amazing. <sighs> And and again, just living in the relative privilege of this body, I can go to the Women's March and I can raise my voice and I can be an activist and I can show up in spaces and raise money for causes. And But I don't walk down the street feeling as though my life might be threatened very often. Late at yeah. night, I'm nervous. I walk with my keys in my hand. I like don't park in certain places. That's being a woman. Right. But I don't have the same experience that you or my girlfriend who lives in Venice have on the sidewalk. And so I wonder if my sacred rage when I'm out screaming or on a podium or, you know, leading a protest doesn't feel as threatening Mm. because I am inherently not as threatened. Right. I also think that when you talk about kind of the, when we've talked about like the proximity to privilege. Mm. So when you talk about privilege and the proximity to privilege, Mm. um, part of that privilege is a certain degree of protection of you by the system, Mm -hmm. right? So absolutely there's the energy piece, but it's also like Courtney and Danny, who are the two white women who were arrested with me, 
you know, we brought it up. Well, why are the two white women not being charged? Not that we want them charged, but why are they not being charged, mm -hmm. right? And it was really the system, city attorney, right, nodding and going, oh, they're okay, right? It's mm -hmm. part of this. They're, but they're next to us. There are folks. Yeah, you're like, these, are these people are with me, not with you. We did the exact same thing. Right. You know, part of them, Gina is sitting up going, I did it. I, even at the time I was being arrested, she didn't touch you. I touched you. You would think at least they'd grab her too, right? right. Nope. Never got grabbed, never got charged. A year has gone by, so they can't charge her now. But right. over and over and over again in the documents that were submitted, everything, she's saying she did it. So I think it's part of the system saying, you know, you might not get all of the white supremacist patriarchal benefits, but you're going to get some of the white supremacist benefits, white woman, right? Mm. You still here, right? And I think that's part of what's happening as well as the energy. And I think that you, what you are challenging in the system is at the root of the system itself. Mm -hmm. You know, you are talking about the disparity in how the system is applied to people of color and you are doing that as a black woman and your threat to the system is bigger. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the it is it's not lost on me that historically there has been an attempt to separate women Mm -hmm. who are trying to make social change, meaning white women trying to make social right. change, from communities of color, because all that the people at the top want to do is bifurcate the people who Absolutely. are upset with them. So so I even wonder if it goes deeper in the court mm. system where they're like, well, if we can make the white ladies feel protected, maybe they won't come to the next Black exactly. Lives Matter protest. Maybe they won't be at the next white people for Black Lives event. Because right. we gave them a pass. Right. And whether that's a conscious choice or not, there is the insidious nature of let's separate. Right. Like look at women's suffrage. Let's separate. Right. Let right. you know, it there has right. always been a a desire by the powerful few to make sure that the more that the less powerful masses don't realize how much collective power they have if Absolutely. they work together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's like, that's where I think that the sacred duty, your, when you talk about being a womanist, being, being here for like a truly intersectional community of women, we have to double down together. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, I'm not going to get duped. I'm not going to do the thing they right. did 100 years ago. No, 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 no. This is not going to happen. And I think we need to lift up that there are hella white women doing it, right? Like, mm. so... Danny and Courtney did go to jail with me. They mm -hmm. did get arrested with me, right? Mm -hmm. Gina is saying, don't arrest her, take me, right? So there are women who are starting to see, mm -hmm. who see the ruse, right? Who and say, who know how to spend their privilege. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And I always feel like as we talk about struggle, we always have to uplift the hope, right? Yeah. That there's... It's a, you know, Dr. King talks about the beautiful struggle, the beauty in the struggle, mm -hmm. right? And so I talked about Molly, but I don't think, I've never had as many white friends as I have in the struggle. Like, mm -hmm. because these are white people who aren't perfect, right? But who I trust, right? I think that for Black people, there's a massive distrust of 
white folks because it's it's reasonable, right? It's logical. But there's a few. We <laughs> In our meetings, we pour something called libation, which kind of honors our ancestors and summons those spirits into the space and asks for guidance. And we always, you know, this Sunday when we have our meeting, we'll absolutely call Toni Morrison, right? Mm. We'll call on those who help us move forward. And white people, and sometimes we'll lift them up like on social media or whatever. Um, white people, our, our ally group is called White People for Black Lives. They've been since, I think they were founded in 2014. Um, they'll hashtag John Brown 2014. John Brown 2015, John Brown 2016, right? They're calling on, for them, the ancestor that shows them how can white people really be down. And we're not asking people to, you know, literally sacrifice their lives and the lives of their sons. That's what John Brown did, right? But that he was down like that. Mm -hmm. Like Mama Harriet's freedom means enough to him that he would give up his life and his son's life, right? In order for us to be free and order, he saw his freedom as bound up with ours. And I mm. think in the midst of struggle, right? Like really engaging in the struggle, that's one of the greatest beauties that mm -hmm. racism isn't absent from the struggle, but I trust the white people in the struggle to a whole different degree than I trust, you know, the white gentrifiers in my neighborhood, right? Mm -hmm. Who I don't trust at all, right? Like the ones who are going to call the police on my kids, right? I'm able to see white people differently as allies, as accomplices, right? Mm -hmm. Willing to disrupt a system that seemingly benefits them. And it's such a relief, isn't it? Yeah. And I always tell my daughter, uh, my middle daughter, who is my free spirit, who I say is my greatest joy and my greatest frustration, right? <laughs> um, that every moment is a new moment, right? So mm. every moment is a moment to do something differently, right? So even if yesterday or this morning you were something that you didn't like, you can change it now. Right. Mm -hmm. And recognize that that's a process too, right? Like change as much as you can. Know that also you're going to get called out on your shit sometimes, right? Yeah. Like you're not going to see everything that I see because you don't know what it feels like, right? Let me call you in, call you out, right? Yeah. And know that it's not personal. It's I need you to be better, yes. right? I need you to be, we're not going to be able to take down all this shit by ourselves, mm -hmm. right? We need you. We need you to step up. We need you to give your voice, your body, and your resources mm -hmm. and move it so that we can all be free. And how lucky to be invited. Mm. I really think that when you shift, when you look in the mirror and choose to shift your perspective from feeling called out to feeling called in, because mm -hmm. let me tell you something like I come from a fucking crazy Italian family. Mm -hmm. I have a whole thing where I'm like, if you ever stab me in the back, I will eviscerate your existence. <laughs> like we're done. Uh -huh. I am I am ice cold. There's no at least have the courage to like look me in the eye and right. give, give me the knife in the stomach. Like let's have right. a, let's have right. an exchange. So I, th 
And it's like, obviously that's on the extreme end of like going through the worst of the worst with people. But I think there's a, a version of that when you get into, if you feel called out, you feel attacked. Stop looking at it like that. When I stop calling you out, you like, you're frozen, you're done. You're the person who stabbed me in the back, you're over, you're never right. invited again. I, I think if we can shift this idea that the call out, if it's happening and you're aware of it, you're being called in. Right. You are being invited. You're being invited into a space to learn, to do better, to be better. Take it as a welcoming. Right. Right. Absolutely. And it is. It's funny. It's like, I, I know there's people who are listening to that who are like, what a weird thing to say. But it's like, <laughs> I'm, I just, I know it to be true and it, and it feels like it exists on the same vibration as that feeling of like the activism is the joy mm. that that's, that's the purpose. That's the calling. And I know that anyone who comes into any of these spaces that we all work in leaves feeling fuller, leaves feeling more connected to themselves and their purpose somehow. It's, it's the thing. Right. It's, it's the thing that helps you stop trying to fill a hole and that makes you the filler. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a really special place to be. And I'm curious on that, on that idea of, you know, activism service calling. What do you, what do you think makes an effective activist? So I think activism is small. Right. Mm. So I, I define myself as an organizer. I keep saying I define myself mm. as I got many identities. Right? I like that. And what that means for me is an activist is somebody who stands up and responds to something. But mm. I think we need to be more than that. Right. So an organizer is someone who builds, right, builds organization mm. um, and also understands that this kind of messianic leadership model where you're going to be an activist and give a great speech and everything's going to change is flawed by design mm -hmm. in order to get you to think that all we need is another Martin Luther King, right? Mm -hmm. The version of Martin Luther King that we were fed is wrong anyway, right? There were thousands of civil rights organizers, right? Mm -hmm. He just happened to be one of the best orators of all time, right? right? But Mama Ella Baker was a far better organizer than him, right? And so we need to understand that there were all of these people. And so for me, I think what makes a good organizer is understanding that we're part of you are not bigger than the movement, right? Mm -hmm. So one of my babas is Hank Jones, who um, was one of the San Francisco Eight, a member of the Black Panther Party who was criminalized and incarcerated for being an active Black man in the 60s, right? Mm -hmm. And he always says, in this movement, our job is to kill the ego, right? So the greatest work we can do is to kill the ego, and I think that that's the greatest internal work that we can do, right? A good organizer doesn't need to have their ego stroked. They never have to be thanked. They nef never have to be receive accolades for the work that they do mm -hmm. because the work should be about the work, mm -hmm. right? And so a good organizer rec recognizes that the most impactful thing that you can do is to create more organizers, right? So mm -hmm. 
to empower people, to not seek an asymmetrical, messianic model of leadership that puts you at the top, right? Leading everybody else behind you, but recognizes how strong we are when we all march arm in arm. And mm. that you also don't know how to do every damn thing. Like I can, I'm, I'm a teacher, right? So I teach pretty well, right? I'm a good writer, you know? I am not artistic. I don't have an artistic bone in my body. And we have someone else in the movement, Fumi Lola, who's a brilliant playwright and poet, right? Who, if we didn't have that team, our arts and culture team, when I speak or write, I feel like it can hit people. The thinking part works. Mm -hmm. But how do you get people to dream? I can't get people to dream. Mm. That's what the artists do, right? Yeah. Because they bypass the mind and get to the soul, right? And then I can, you know, put in the thoughts, right? Right. Yeah, so, but I can write likewise. And if you needed me to draw a picture, I'd be like, here's a stick figure. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I don't have that. Right, but you're an artist, right? Sure. You're an artist. I'm a performer, but I right. can't paint. <laughs> yeah, but somebody, but that's yeah. the point. Like a good organizer rep recognizes we need performance artists. Yeah. We need painters. Mm -hmm. We need people who can speak. Mm -hmm. We need people who can mobilize. We got this sister in Black Lives Matter named Jan who she can make friends with any damn body, mm -hmm. right? Like we'll be at a protest. Next thing you know, she got everybody's life story. Mm -hmm. She's telling us what they going to do. These people are at the next meeting because Jan, that's a gift yes. to be able to commune with people like that. And so good organizers recognize that you were, you know, one pane in a stained glass window, you know, mm -hmm. and it takes your job is to figure out how all these pieces fit together to form that glass, to form mm -hmm. that formation that's going to get us to where we need to go. I love that. Yeah. And I think it also takes the pressure of participation off for people who are starting their journey of showing up, speaking up, standing up. Because some people think that if they don't know how to do it, they shouldn't, they shouldn't or can't or don't have permission and when you talk about organizing and the community and getting back to that village that we evolved in as a people, it highlights the reality that activism and social change, it's, this is a relay race. Mm. We run on teams. We pass the baton. That's the only way for us to sustain is to do it together. Yeah. And it, people often describe it as a relay race. Mm -hmm. But I think it's kind of a, a modified relay, mm -hmm. right? So I was talking to somebody about youth organizing, and they were talking about this relay. People need to pass mm -hmm. the baton. I think the baton needs to be passed, but you still got to keep running. Oh, yeah. You That's know? how I picture it. It's yeah. like running in a pack, <laughs> right. and you just pass the thing around. Maybe I should say it, it feels more like... I don't know, one of those Olympic torch ceremonies where like everybody goes together, but yeah. certain people have the torch at different times. Right. But yeah, because right. if you're running alone, then what's the point? Right. Yeah. I'm not running with the torch and then passing it and then stopping. No. We still got to keep going. Yeah. And when we're all running, that's how we win. Yeah. I want to um, just 
quickly address um, what you said about people thinking they have to have something special. Mm. You do have something special, right? I don't know what it is. Maybe you get along well with children. Maybe you can cook. Maybe you can sing. All of those things are, that's what I mean by Mama Ella Baker calls it group-centered leadership, right? Mm. All of that stuff is valuable to the movement, even if you just have good handwriting. That's your one claim to fame. You've been in rooms with people writing on the damn Mm -hmm. butcher paper and you can't read what they wrote. We need you, who has the good penmanship, to be the scribe, Mm -hmm. right? Even if that's all you got, please bring it. Like, just Mm -hmm. bring it and offer it and it's going to be valuable. I love that. Yeah. Because people don't realize that they are exceptional. Mm-hmm. Everyone sort of thinks that, like, unless they're, I don't know, the great, you know, world changer, that they're maybe not a value add. And every single person is a value add. Absolutely. You said that racism is not simply a matter of thinking or feeling. It is a social hierarchy imposed to afford white people with unearned material and psychic beliefs. And I feel like we've unpacked a lot of that pretty mm-hmm. well. But here we are with a president who was quoted eight times in a mass murderer's manifesto. Mm, Right. There is this assumption that the system punishes the people who do wrong, but we are talking about very disparate punishment right now. What do, what do we do with this? What do we, because I, I, I would wager that there's a lot of people listening who feel very traumatized by what Trump is doing and what he's bringing into this country, that his dehumanization of people and and the effects it's having. What do you think people at home can do? How do how do they support? How do they fight back against it? How do they support making society better? How do they support you? I'm I'm curious how we turn the tide on something that is this insidious. Yeah, I mean, we absolutely cannot tolerate him. We cannot tolerate him. And, you know, he's dangerous in terms of his rhetoric, Mm -hmm. policy. Mm -hmm. And I think that the last week has shown us how he's spurred up white supremacist violence, right? It doesn't mean that that was never part of this country. It's part of the founding of this country. Mm. But in my lifetime, we've always moved further and further away from it, right? Mm. We've always seemed to, and you talked about being pushed, right? But it's really two steps forward, one step back, Mm -hmm. right? So we've always moved forward. This is the first time I feel like a massive push backwards, right? A mass, like, uh, Sister Soldier um, had a song, Slavery's Back in Effect, right? And it sounded like this super far-fetched idea. But now when you look at what's happening, right? When you look at, you know, locking children in cages, right? When you look at family separation, I think it's one of the reasons why you see Black people so involved in what's happening at the border mm-hmm. is because, like, there's a transgenerational memory, of our own family separation, Mm -hmm. right? It's just overwhelming. He has given complete permission for white supremacist terrorists to do whatever they want. And 
it doesn't mean that they weren't there, but they were being put in check, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that even um, racism is not just a matter of thinking and feeling, but I think part of that permission is for them to engage the lowest of themselves, right? To say that those kind of lower creature instincts of invasion, of ownership, of mine, right, can be meted out in the most violent ways, right? When you think about these mass shooters, right, like, we've seen things, when you go back historically and you look at what they did to my people under chattel slavery or what they did to my people after Reconstruction during the height of the lynching era, right, the ideas I don't even know how they brought themselves to mutilate us and torture us in the way that they did, but that's what's moving back around, mm -hmm. right? That's what this back again, right? Um, what is it? Great again. He says great. Mm. Any again, that's what he's hearkening to, right? I've never seen this happen before. And so I'm saying that to say I don't really have the answers one super easy one is he got to go, right? He got to go. It's not radical to say I'm not voting, right? So some people think, oh, well, you know, I'm not voting. The Republicans and the Democrats are the same. No. They have a, they both are owned by corporate America and we can't have this fool in office no more. Mm -hmm. So he got to go. He got to go. Congress has to be courageous enough to drag his ass up out of there. We really can't afford to wait until 20, no. what would the take office again, 2021. We can't afford to wait that long. Mm -mm. So I think this whole idea of impeachment, I say a dragging, like somebody, somebody just needs to drag him. Like, you know, I can't say too much, but he got to go. He got to go. Like, I would like to see him go immediately. I think also, though, as we talk about voting and one of my concerns around kind of uh, the engagement with electoral politics, which I think is important, is that sometimes we allow systems to tell us that's our only tool. And I believe in voting, but I believe in what I call voting plus, right? Vote, yes. And what else are you going to do? Right? Yes. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Voting plus. Right. Because you can't just vote. Right. You must vote. Right. What is your responsibility once every four years for 15 minutes? Yeah. No. no. No, it's Local every elections. day. Yes. yes. Local yeah. elections, midterm elections, every four years presidential. And who are you in your community every day? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's not okay. You don't get to sit by. Mm -hmm. And watch injustices happen, right? Mm -hmm. This is a burden that Black people bear all of the time, right? When we talk about, like, everyday racisms, right? Mm -hmm. Every day we're experiencing something. And I don't want to go on a whole diatribe about what I just experienced at Costco. But I love Costco, too. It's, like, one of my favorite places. But they hurt me because I went to buy some pizzas at Costco. I had on a Black Lives Matter T-shirt. The guy giving me my pizzas, it was supposed to take 15 minutes, gave my pizzas away to these two white men who walked up behind me knowing I was waiting. When I confront him, he takes even longer. He decides he's going to, 
get a bee out of the, <laughs> sounds so stupid, but there was a bee trapped in the screen. He's going to remove the bee from the screen and he can't hand me my pizzas because this is more important. And like, I felt dumb having to call Costco and say, I feel like this was racism, but I know it was racism, right? Mm -hmm. I know it was. When you see that happening, one, those two white men shouldn't have taken the damn pizzas. They knew I was there before them, right? Mm -hmm. But you don't get to just sit there and watch it happen. And so the everyday things aren't always big things like protesting at a police commission meeting or mm -hmm. joining a march or forming a march, right? Mm -hmm. It's also the little things, you know, when you see, well, why did the black boy not get picked for the class, for the advanced class, right? Ask those questions from wherever you are, whatever mm -hmm. it is, wherever you, when people are on the internet talking about Ariel can't be black, you know, like. Don't get me started. <laughs> I was like, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> right. Like, what is the matter with you? <laughs> Give her the job. I think about things from macro to micro and making sure you're making calls, making sure you're donating what you can, making sure you're showing up where you can. If you're witnessing somebody getting pulled over or pulled aside by the police in public, just stand there. Right. I stand around now. Yeah. I stand Stop around. Them. I have my phone in my hand yeah. and I'm like, if I need to, I'll record it. Yeah. But I just want to be there energetically. Mm -hmm. I just want to be there. Right. And, and they hate it. The police hate it when you stand there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've never and cop watched and the person didn't get sent home. Yeah. No, they yeah. don't love it. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I, as I mentioned, you know, to be frank, like I'm still very close to my technical advisor that I worked with in Chicago and I tell him that and he's like, good, you should. Good. And I'm like, I like you. Mm -hmm. I knew I liked you for a reason. Like right. it, you know, I'm, I'm up front. I'm like, I love you enough to challenge you. Right. Here we are. Right. I love this country enough to challenge her, James Baldwin. Like, right. I reserve the right to criticize her perpetually because I love her. Yes. It is so important. Yes. And I'm curious for anybody who's listening to us today who is in the L.A. area and wants to show up, wants to show up for Black Lives Matter, for a city council meeting, for white people for Black Lives. Where do they start? So we have a website blmla.org. And we have a website because there was a white ally who said we needed a website and she donated money for us to build a website. So that's a victory. blmla.org. On social media, we're BLM Los Angeles on Instagram and blmla on Twitter. And if they're listening right now, so that'll give you everything that we're doing, mm -hmm. right? So just follow our social media. But if you're listening right now, there's some things people can do right this minute, right? Mm -hmm. Number one, they can join our monthly meetings, which are every second Sunday of the month. They can join our weekly protest with the families of those who are killed by police in front of Jackie Lacey's office. Jackie Lacey is our district attorney. 540 people have been killed by police since she's been in office. She's been in office for six years, and she is choosing not to prosecute those officers. So every single Wednesday at four o'clock, we're in front of her office. 
Here's a super easy one. Um, we try to give people 60 seconds for justice. Something super easy that folks can do. I talked about the murder of Grishario Mack mm-hmm. inside of the Crenshaw Baldwin Hills Mall. Those officers were ruled out of policy by the police commission. And the chief of police is has decided so far that he is not going to fire or discipline them. And so we want people to sign an online petition to Chief Moore to fire those officers. And that's an easy link. It's tinyurl.com slash grishario, G-R-E-C-H-A-R-I-O, G-R-E-C-H-A-R-I-O. And just sign and share that link. And then you can always donate to Black Lives Matter show up to police commission meetings. There's a lot that you can do. Our young people, if you're a parent, we have uh, Black Lives Matter Youth Vanguard who just won a tremendous victory. Um, For the last four years, they've been trying to end what they call the random searches in schools. Mm -hmm. So in LAUSD, they had a policy of every single middle and high school Every single day, they would pull children out of schools, usually Black children, and physically search them for contraband. You would think contraband is things like guns and drugs, right? Um, In that time, they found zero guns. But what they were putting children on lists for is for having contraband items like hand sanitizer, highlighters, whiteout, Sharpies. What? Yes, it was terrible. And the children kept fighting. This was a completely student-led movement supported by the teachers from UTLA, who I, I'm so indebted to our teachers. so incredible. Oh, my God. They went on strike not for their own raises. Yes. They went on strike for the conditions of my children. And I, I tear up every time I say it because my daughters were searched, are searched, And they Mm -hmm. went on strike to end those random searches, to turn our schools into community schools, Mm -hmm. to bring librarians and counselors into the schools. Mm -hmm. And we won. And so starting this year, there was an end to random searches in schools. And um, so I'm saying that to say, bring your kids. Yes. Kids to the, that's what's part of the beauty of the movement. The young people will win. Yeah. And I mean, kids, like bring your four, five, six year olds. They have ideas. Like when we talk about dream before you think, they are nothing but dreamers. Yes. And they fill us with so much life and imagination. And so those are things people can do. I love that. Yeah. And that makes me feel hopeful. That makes me just feel like on fire with potential. Yeah. Okay. So my last question for you, and I ask this of everybody because Mm -hmm. I, I get to sit across from so many people who I'm in awe of. Mm -hmm. And I think that very often in an ever more digital world where we're looking at people through screens, we kind of feel like everybody else has it all figured out has figured out how to lead, has figured out how to parent, has figured out how to whatever it is they're doing better than we think we're doing. But in my experience, everybody still feels like they're trying to figure it out. And so I'm curious, as the podcast is called Work in Progress, Mm -hmm. what in your life right now feels like a work in progress to you? Oh, my God. Like everything. (laughs) (laughs) Um. I have not conquered my battle with food. I love food. I specifically, I'm looking at these peach rings right here. I'm like, Mm. I want some of those. Mm -hmm. So when we stop talking, I'm eating some. I have not 
yet figured out how some people find exercise fun, I don't want to do that, right? I like taking walks, but I don't want to go to a gym. It's nasty. I don't want to go to a gym. I'm a terrible romantic partner. (laughs) So I'm not in a relationship and I've only been in like, well, I was married to my children's father for 10 years, but that ended seven years ago. And yeah, astrologer actually told me, he said, um, he asked me, well, why are you divorced? And I said, I think I married the, I guess I married the wrong person. And he said, no, you married the right person. That's why you're divorced. And he said, I'm not intended to be in a long-term relationship. I'm intended to have like these sometimes a year, Mm -hmm. sometimes three months, sometimes. So I have not figured that out at all. And I'm starting to figure out, well, that's what it maybe is. Maybe he was right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I don't know. There's, There's so much. I haven't figured out any of this shit. None of it. Like... I don't know what freedom looks like. I can't, you know, I don't know what I, I'm supposed to be writing a book. I'm going on sabbatical. Haven't started the damn mm-hmm. book because I start reading for the book and then get lost in the reading. I haven't figured out how to make myself meditate when Oprah and Deepak don't have those 21-day meditations. It's really hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I have to make myself because otherwise I'd lose my mind, but it's like work. Mm-hmm. I haven't figured out how do you be an activist and keep a clean house. So, yeah, none of it. I have to say, I get, I'm, I'm sitting here just going, mm-hmm, yes, mm-hmm, because everything you're saying makes me feel relieved in a way <laughs> that it isn't just me. It's like, it's a very full plate. Yeah. When you want to have a life and dedicate your life and, and you have kids, like I have a dog and I don't know how to do it. I'm like, yeah. who knows how to keep a thing alive? <laughs> like, what is this? It feels hard. And I feel like I'm always cleaning and there's always stuff. And there, I just, I don't know the answers yet. But yeah, the 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 practice of self-care feels like work to me, where caring for the world feels like joy. Absolutely. Because self-care is selfish care. But it isn't. Self-care isn't selfish. It is if you don't adopt. So I want you to hear what you said. Caring for the world feels like joy. Mm. All we have to do is create a model where we reciprocate the care for the world, right? Yeah. So self. the reason I say self-care is selfish care is for a couple of reasons. One, I feel like too many people use it as an excuse to shove the shit that they're supposed to be doing off onto my plate. Right, mm-hmm. saying that they need their me time or whatever. Well, that work still has to be carried, and I feel like it's the black mamas who wind up carrying it. Right, mm-hmm. black women being the mules of the world. Mm-hmm. Right, Zora Neale Hurston. Right, so I'm mad about that. But also the selfish care when people really need care, you can't just say you should take care of yourself. Right, we need to take care of them. Yes, and so I believe in a model of community care. I yeah. believe that there are times when we need care Mm -hmm. and we should all be that care for each other. Yes. And I want to clarify, I fully agree with what you're saying. And what I'm learning, for me anyway, is that personally, I have, I think as so many women have, been taught to prioritize everyone over myself. Mm. And now I'm like, oh no, oh no, no, self-care I can't think that it's selfish of me to sleep right, or 
to make time to meditate mm-hmm. or, and by the way, it's not like I meditate every day, but I'm trying to get mm-hmm. at least to more days when I do than when I don't. Right. And I'm really in this sort of struggle with understanding that I deserve that because if I, if the things I needed to do to be a healthy person, I needed to do for my child, they would be done. Right. No question. And so I, I'm, I'm in this stage in the last year and change where I'm like, oh, I have to require it for myself the way I would require it for my kid. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And I, I, I think that even that is community care because why are you mm-hmm. preserving yourself? Like I can't die because yeah. I got kids in a movement, right? Yes. So you know, I probably should scale back on the peach rings, right? Like, you know, we should do some level of care. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the other work in progress. I never sleep. Like I sleep maybe three hours. And so that's something I'm trying to work on. You know, okay, so now I know you said work in progress, but here's a hack I learned. Mm. Laugh for real every day. Yes. Laugh, like my middle daughter, we be rolling. Like, like to the point where tears come out, your ribs start hurting, like that kind of laughter every single day. Find something that makes you do it. And then all the other stuff doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. Right. So. Oh, well, I love it. We got life hacks. We got, we got some work to do. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Onward. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editors are Josh Windish and Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy.